All right, good afternoon, everyone. We are holding Parshas Toldos. Parshas Toldos is, of course, the Parsha in which we shift into the story of Yaakov and Esav. There are three main stories that take place or that are carried through our Parsha, all having to do with Yaakov and Esav. The beginning of our Parsha is about the birth of Yaakov and Esav, of course, as twins. Uh, Yitzchak and Rivka do not have children for a long period of time, and the Torah takes some time to tell us about their actual birth. And then the very next story of the Torah is the selling of the birthright, in which Yaakov buys the birthright from his brother Esav. And then later on the Parsha, the bulk of the Parsha is Yaakov then stealing the blessing, which he believed, or his mother at least believed was his, uh, as a result of the fact that either he was the firstborn or he just indeed was entitled to that bracha anyway, all of that is a discussion unto itself. But that is really the parsha that takes place. I'm trying to figure, like, who am I supposed to look at? Am I supposed to look at it? And we'll do a little bit of both. That is real. I'll, I'll, I'll face it like this. Now we can do both at the same time. Uh, that is really the, uh, the bulk of the parsha, the, st- the story of Yaakov and Esav. What I'd like to do is, as we've started these past couple weeks, learning the commentary of Rav Hirsch, um, so it's hard to call him a contemporary commentary because he wrote it 150 years ago in the late 1860s, 1870s. It took him 11 years to write this commentary. But it's far more contemporary than, say, the Ramban in the 1200s or the Maharal in the 14th and 15th century. It's certainly more contemporary. But uh, as we read through this commentary, because he has a lot to say about the development of Yaakov and Esav, about these two twins who literally grow up in the same home and yet take such divergent paths and how did that come about? See, he has some very, uh, I don't know if I would call them controversial, but certainly non-conformist um, uh, approaches there, uh, in his understanding of exactly uh, how that took place. And it's a fascinating study. As we read through them, which we'll do this morning to keep in mind, he's still before the birth of modern psychology. This is before he's publishing in 1860, 1870, Freud has not yet come on the scene in terms of the way that we know and then the development of psychology and looking at parents and parenting. So keep, those, uh, th- keep that historical note in mind as we read some of his comments on the development. A number of fascinating comments. Let's do, what I want to do is let's read a couple of the psukim in the beginning, point out some of the issues or comments or problems in the text that refers notes, and then we'll circle back and read his comments and commentary on that. Torah begins as here we have, these are, this is the story or the offspring of Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham holid es Yitzchak. This, this Pasuk is uh, almost completely unnecessary in every single way, as Rashi already notes, as Refresh will address as well. We, we know who Yitzchak is, if you remember the entire story last week of the Akedah, of the binding, uh, of those really two weeks ago, and then last week in which Avram sends his servant Eliezer to find a wife for Yitzchak. We know that Yitzchak is the son of Avram, and we know all of that. And yet the Torah here highlights it. These, uh, now we're going to tell us the us of Yitzchak, but he's Ben Avram, and Avram not only that, the next post tells us, Yitzchak was 40 years old when he marries Rivka, who was the daughter of Besuel from Padan Aram, she was the sister of Lavan, who was also the Aramean, and he marries her as his wife. 
Some of this Pasuk is new and some of the Pasuk is not. What is new is the age. We did not know that before. We knew that at the end of last week's Pasha, Eliezer arrives back home with, El, with Rivka on top of the camel. Of course, they have the meeting in the field. Yitzchak had gone out. Which the sages understood to mean to Davin. He was davening Mincha towards the end of the day. And Rivka sees him and she uh, quickly uh, descends from the camel in a show of modesty, and he marries her and brings her into his mother's tent, and uh, everything is good in the world again. Um, but the Torah here tells us how old he was. That we did not know, that he was 40 years old when he marries uh, Rivka, but what we do know is who she is. Here we have the lineage. She was Bas Besuel, the daughter of Besuel. She was the sister of Lavan. She comes from Padan Aram. All of that is well known to us because we had the entire story last week in Parshish Chayisar where Eliezer goes to find him and the, to- the story is repeated twice. We know exactly where her father is. We know where her brother is. We know where she's from. And yet the Torah highlights all of this as well. Rashi, which is going to be a different approach than what we'll see in Refer Shinimon, Rashi notes that the reason why the Torah highlights this is to say, look, look at what a righteous person she was. She even came from a wicked father. She came from a wicked brother. She came from a wicked town. And despite all of that, none of that had any impact on who she was and what she was to become. She still became the righteous uh, Rivka. Let's read another Pasuk or two. But again, just noting the unnecessary lineage, which we already know. Yitzchak Davins pleads, prays incessantly with Hashem. Literally would translate as on behalf of his wife. Ki akarohi, she was barren. They were not able to have children. We will see just in a few moments that they are. Yitzchak is sixty years old when the twins are born. So we know it's twenty years of barrenness that they are married. The Torah tells us he marries at twenty and he doesn't have children until sixty. So Yitzchak is davening Ki akarohi, she is barren. Hashem Hashem responds eventually to his plea, and Rivka. Conceives. Then, as we know, the children uh, agitate, they struggle within her. Now, she doesn't yet know she's carrying twins. But clearly, something was so off and so wrong and causing her so much distress. She says, What's going on? Why, why, is, this, why is this upon me? So she goes to seek, she asks the local prophets, what's going on, what's the deal, why, why am I struggling, what's happening with this pregnancy? And Hashem responds to her through the prophecy that she receives, You need to know, this is not a normal pregnancy, you're actually carrying twins. And not only are you carrying twins, but they are two separate nations. And he uses a double language. Shnei goyim bevitnech. Two separate people, two nations are in your womb. Shnei lu'umim. And two separate peoples will issue out of your womb. Ule'om mila'om ye'emats. But one will be stronger than the other. Verav ya'avod tsa'ir. And the older will serve the younger. So yes, you'll have two. One will become far stronger than the other, but it's going to be the younger one indeed who will be the master because the older one is going to serve the younger. And then let's do one more puzzle before going back a little bit. No, we'll do three more. Let's do the whole, uh, whole, the whole Indian. And the time came. So she's given this prophecy. 
she finds out that indeed it's not a normal pregnancy, so to speak. She has these twins in her. Not only is she told she has twins, but that they're going to develop into these two major nations as well. And uh, the time came for her to give birth. And behold, there were twins in her womb. As first, she's going to be troubled by the language of vihine implies like a surprise. Twins came out. And he, what do you mean? What's the surprise over here? He, she had just been told to Pusik before that she's carrying twins. Two different nations will issue from her womb. And then the Pusik says, and her days were fulfilled in, her, in terms of her pregnancy. And lo and behold, twins came out. Uh, that's exactly what we were expecting. Why is there a language of surprise in the birth of the twins? The Torah says the first one emerged red. Kulok, aderes, se'ar, hairy. All over, a red hairy child, and they named him therefore Esav. It's first of all, refresh notes, double two things. Number one, who calls him Esav? It's a them, it's a plural. They called him, like everybody around sort of said, Wow, this is Esav. Esav comes from the word Asu, fully made, done, complete. He came out ready to go. Normally a baby, of course, is not a finished product in every way. But this one came out and he was so hairy and red and strong and big and developed. They called him Esav from the language of Asu. He's already made and they called him that. That was just an obvious name for him. And then afterwards his brother came out. And as the first one emerges, the second one comes out holding on to his heel. And he called him You'll see in the English translation you have it, it's not quite accurate. It says, and so they named him Jacob. But the, in, in the Hebrew, in the original actual Chumash, it does not say plural. It says, and he called him Yaakov. It sounds like Yitzchok named this second child Yaakov, based on the name of Heel, since he was holding on to the heel of his older brother. And here the Torah then bookends the opening with the end. At this point of their birth, the first story, which is the story of their birth, is now complete. Yitzchak was 60 years old when, when they were born, 20 years after... 20 years after they married. Okay, there are a number of comments that we uh, highlighted already, a number of others. Rashi has a number of comments on this, but we're focusing uh, this afternoon on Rav Hirsch's comments. So let's go through some of the things that he has to say on this. Number one, we pointed out that the lineage has been repeated uh, a second time in the beginning of our parsha, the lineage of, of uh, Yitzchak is repeated. He was the son of Avram. And the lineage of Rivka is repeated, that she was the daughter of Besuel and the sister of Lavan. Both of those things which we already know. Rashi comments on both. I already mentioned the Rashi's comment on Rivka was to show you how righteous she was, even though she descended from such wicked people. And Rashi comments the reason why Yitzchak's lineage is repeated here, that he was descended from Avram, is because Avram and Sarah had been married for many, many, many years, and they didn't have any children. And then Sarah was abducted by Avimelech, Melech Gerar, and uh, Hashem miraculously intervenes after Avram had said that she's my sister, which was the second time that he had said that. And then lo, shortly after, Avram 
is given the mitzvah of bris mila, and Sarah conceives and has a child. So the average onlooker said, <laughs> Sarah and Avram are married 60 years with no children. She's abducted by, uh, by Avimelech, and nobody knew that nothing had happened there. But all of a sudden, she becomes pregnant. So everybody was saying, whose child is not Avram's child? This is from Avimelech. So therefore, the Torah highlights, Avraham Olidas Yitzchak Yitzchak was, was, was a replica of Avram. You saw in baby Yitzchak, oh, this was clearly the son of Avram, and that's why the Torah highlights their lineage here. But first takes us in a different direction. We highlight the lineage of our next generation, of Yitzchak and Rivka, where they came from, because we're about to learn of the birth of their children, which is, of course, Yaakov and Asaph. As Rav Hirsch writes as follows. The difference of the lineage of the two parents, which is being highlighted here, Yitzchak came from an Avram, and Rivka Nebuch, she came from a Lavan and a Besuel in Padan Aram. The reason why this difference is being highlighted is it can account for the deep-lying cause of all that will follow. And what is all that will follow? Everything about this parsha is going to be the divergent paths taken by Yaakov and Esav. And the question that one can always ask, and we always do as we go through these parshas, we ask us about ourselves. You know, like, like, do you have these kids that are raised in the same family, the same home, and they go in like totally different directions? And you say, like, it's so interesting. Like, they had everything the same, and yet they took such different paths in life. Now, sometimes, many oftentimes, that's not actually true that they had everything the same. I've I've joked around many times about my own family. I'm sure this is true about many others, but my eldest child who was born in Baltimore and raised in Atlanta and moved to Montreal when she started 11th grade, actually did not grow up in the same home as my youngest child, who was born in Montreal, uh, the youngest of seven. Rifki and I are totally different people in the 13, 14 years that went by from when Racheli was our first. Everything that we didn't know about parenting for Racheli, we still don't know, but fake better with uh, with our youngest, but the, the home is not the same home. Not just that it's in a different city. My whole stage in life is different. So when you look at an oldest to a youngest and you say, they're such different people, that's not even a question. That doesn't, that doesn't even like raise an eyebrow. Like, how could that be? They're really not being raised in the same home. They're being raised under totally different circumstances. So lots of things can happen. But when you have twins, they're already... There already, you can at least ask the question and say, a Yaakov and an Esav, they literally were raised in the same home at the same stage of life of their parents. It wasn't that Yitzchak had one job when the oldest was born and a different job in a different city when the youngest was born. Same home, same parents, same circumstances. How do we end up with a Yaakov and an Esav? So Rav Hirsch wants to address this. Now, if... I were to ask that question and say, which one is the expected one and which one is the unexpected one? You have two totally different paths and say, which one, if I had to guess, if I, or if I would have thought they both would have been like one or the other, which would we have expected they both would be like? So I think, having been raised in, in the world that we've all been raised in, I think I'd be pretty confident in saying that we would all think that a child of Yitzhak and Rivka, the expectation would be they would have had two Yaakovs not that they would have had two Esav. So that if one of these two children surprise us, Esav is the surprise, and Yaakov is, of course, that's what you would expect from Avram to Yitzchak, you would expect the next one to be a Yaakov. However, Rav Hirsch is going to have quite a novel approach. Let's read a little bit about of his comments. Not for nothing are we told that Yitzchak was already 40 when he marries Rivka. 
not for nothing, is that the opening of the story that he's already 40. 40 is not a, a young age to get married. Much as it was Avram's dearest wish and anxious worry that he should find the right wife, we know already from all of last week's parasha, Avram was very concerned about his son Yitzhak as to that he should be given the right wife. Yet he waits until he's 40 years old to send out Eliezer and say, no, it's time for my son to get married. Why is that that Avram is willing to wait so long until Yitzhak finally marries? Because... Yitzchak's character, raising himself in the home of an Avram Avinu, being raised in the home of an Avram Avinu, was first to reach its full independence, maturity, energy. Yitzchak needs to become a Yitzchak Avinu until, or before I should say, he's then going to marry himself and start the next generation. So that he could be not only materially um, supportive of his wife, but he needs to be spiritually supportive of his wife. By definition, Avram knows whoever we're going to bring in to marry Yitzchak is coming in from the outside. We know from last week, he said, well, the people who live here, they're a disaster. We can't take from them. Go back to my homeland. But they're idolaters there also. It's just they have a little better midos over there, so we can find a gem there better than we'll find over here. But whoever we're going to bring into the home of Avram and now Yitzchak, is going to be coming in from the outside, is not someone who was raised like an Avraham or the way Avraham raised his son Yitzchak. And therefore Yitzchak needs to become the pillar of spirituality to be able to do that and to wholly support spiritually the wife that he, she's, he's going to bring in. Therefore, Chazal, by the way, say that Rivka was very young. There's a tradition that she was only three years old. But that, in order for it to become a second Sarah, to become the next Imaha, the mother of uh, the Jewish people. So Yitzchak needs to be what he needs to be in order to be able to, uh, to do so. Now, as he points out, we've already seen a striking difference between the surrounding of Rivka and that of Yitzchak. Yitzchak grows up in the home of Avram. And Rivka, his wife, grows up in the home of Lavan and Besuel. Why does the Torah highlight that? Both by saying where Yitzchak came from and where Rivka came from, before we're told about the birth of these twins. So that, so that Rivka, despite, and this is a, a very powerful line that he writes, despite her undeniable good qualities, was still the daughter of an Aramite born and brought up in Aram, the sister of the most pronounced Aramite Lavan. And as the sages say, if you want to know what a young man is going to be like, if you have a daughter in Shaduchim and she's bringing somebody home, and you might know, like, what's the character of this guy that she just brought home? So Chazal say, Rov banim holchim achar Look at the young man's mother and then her brothers. Because that's what his, her, the mother of this boy, that's what she grew up with. That's what you're going to see is going to go down. That's how she's going to raise. That's what she's going to think is normal. So if you want to know what a young man is going to be like, check out his uncles, his mother's brothers. That'll be. So who was Rivka's brothers? If you wanted to see like what was a Yaakov and an Esau going to become like, okay, well, check out the mother's brother, Lavan. That's what she grew up or surrounded by. What children could be expected to come from this marriage of Yitzchak and Rivka if we would expect them to become replicas of their uncle Lavan. And then he says the most amazing thing, Rav Thus, we are prepared beforehand for the discord which is going to arise later on between Yitzchak and an Esav. We cannot be surprised that an Esav appears. 
we can only wonder at finding a Yaakov next to him. That is a powerful statement that first says that when you combine the Yitzchak and Arifka and the home that Arifka came from, despite all of her qualities, the fact is the mother that's raising these children came from a uh, corrupted, spiritually speaking, home. And he, he writes, it is not surprising that an Esau would come out of such a, a home. It's more surprising that a Yaakov would be found out. That's a very... Uh, novel uh, approach that refers writes. We're going to see more of this as well. The very next Pasuk says that Yitzchak davens and davens and davens because 20 years go by and Rivka's not having any children. So 20 long years, Yitzchak and Rivka struggle without any children. Why is it that Yitzchak davens lenochach ishto? He's davening on behalf of his wife. So why not on behalf of the two of them? Why is it only specifically that he's davening for her? So her first writes, because Yitzchak was well aware of the promise that he had received, the tradition from his father, uh, Avram, ki bi Yitzchak ikare lechazere, that Hashem promised Avram, you're going to have many children, you're going to inherit this land, they're going to be like the stars of the heaven, and it's going to happen through Yitzchak. So Yitzchak, I know I'm going to have children. I just don't know with whom I'm going to have children. So therefore, to Yitzchak, it was known that the promise would be fulfilled. But whether the covenant of Avram could be carried out by, a, by the daughter of a Besuel and the sister of a Lavan, despite her own excellency, that he had no idea. And every year that went by, and no children, and no children, and no children, would well have begun to creep doubts into you know, maybe when Eliezer went out over there and he found this girl, this wasn't the one that I was destined to marry. And therefore his tefillahs are lenochach ishto, are specifically referring to her that, that she should be the one indeed to be the fulfillment. I know I'm going to have children, you promised me that, but I don't know if it's with her. So he davens, let it be with her. And parenthetically, he adds or first that the same way that Avram and Sarah's child had to be miraculous, it had to be a direct gift from God in which it doesn't make sense that Avram and Sarah could have had children. The next generation also has that, as has been well documented. Yitzchak and Rivka, the next stone building up the house of the Jewish people, also doesn't make any sense. 20 years go by in which she's a barren woman unable to have children before she will have these particular twins. Now, they agitate within her, as we read, the two twins, which again, she doesn't know yet at first that they are indeed twins. And so she goes to seek out Hashem to understand what's, what's going on with these two children that are inside of me. And Hashem uses that double language like we pointed out. Shnei goyim There are two nations in your room. And, and two, two nations... Two manners of government, as her first point says. What's the double language? We shnei goyim, two nations, ushnei lu'umim, and two nations. It says a poet can get away with a double language that doesn't really add anything to the meaning. But Shem doesn't function that way. Like if we have, if the prophecy is a double language, two nations and two nations, there must be something added in the two different words of shnei goyim, two nations, and shnei lu'umim, and two nations. So her first says, indeed, the word lu'um, as a nation, actually refers to a form of government. And what he explains is, there can be two different nations, but they really share a culture or a form of government. Like, for example, the U.S. and Canada. Two totally separate nations. Like, literally separate. 
They have, they have different cultures. They're separate nations. But the general value system is the same, and the government is the same. They're both democracies. They both function as the people are going to choose the leadership. And then you have minor differences. This one has a president, this one has a prime minister, a congress, and a parliament. But in effect, the government really functions the same, even though they're two separate nations. That's one model in which you have two nations who function similarly. And then you could put, we could put a lot of nations in that category. All the democracies in the Western world are all very different nations. They all are different. If you take England, and, I mean, there are a lot of democracies right now. But then you can say, wait, wait a minute. Then there's some other nations that don't function at all similarly to all of the democratic nations. Those are tyrannical governments that are either monarchies or the, whatever the remnant of a monarchy, communism, dictatorship. So when you say the U.S. and Canada are different nations, but they're really, they're similar in nature, they're just different, then you could say North Korea and Canada, North Korea and the U.S., they're not just different nations who function the same and they're just different, they're functioning in different worlds. And that, says Refersh, is what the two meanings are. They're shnei goyim, they're two separate nations, but they're not two separate nations that share values, share a form of government, they're shnei lu'umim, they are going to function on totally separate planes. And in what way will Yaakov and Esav not just be two separate nations, but two totally functioning, separate functioning uh, groups of government and, and nations? In that one, Yaakov would be built up, will build up its greatness on spirit, on morals, on the humane intrinsic to every human being. That is its value system. That is how it will run itself Am Yisrael. The other, the nation of Esav, not only will it be a separate nation, but it will seek its greatness in cunning and in strength, in violence and in power. And so the two nations, besides for being separate, but they actually function in totally different worlds. On the one hand, spirit versus strength on the other. Morality on one, violence on the other. And from birth on, these two nations, representing, represented by Yaakov and by Esav, will always stand in opposition to each other. And all of human history, Refers writes, is the struggle between these two nations. Is it might, strength, and violence? Or is it morality and ethics and the, the value of spirit and humankind, which one dominates the world scene. The sages, Chazal, describe this as the power of Rome versus the power of Jerusalem. And Chazal say, they're never both up. When one is up, the other is down. And when the other is up, the other is down. And the only question is, which force is dominating world history at any given moment? The power of Rome, Edom, Esav? Or is it the power of Jerusalem? But this is all intrinsic in this prophecy of Shnei Goyim, who Shnei Lu'umim. Not just two nations that share values, they're just separate nations. Two entirely different values of how to understand the world. The prophecy concluded, the older will serve the younger. Refer says that's actually a mistranslation. The word rav does not mean the older. Not the older will serve the younger. Rav always refers to the greater, the one in greater number, the one in greater strength. The prophecy is, will serve the younger. Not because Esav is the older, but despite the fact that in, in general we would think the more powerful one will rule. Shem gives us a prophecy here, and this is all of world history and Jewish history. Despite that, 
at the end of the day, the power, the violence of the Esav will eventually serve Yaakov. In Rav Hirsch's language, in the end it will be seen that the one who it seemed was mightier had fought for his strength and his purposes and his material uh, acquisitions in reality was working for the younger and was really preparing victory for the younger one and the representative of the spiritual and moral will come out of the struggle as the ultimate victor. That when the powerful nations of Rome and of, the, of all of Western civilization that comes out of that, which one might think might makes right, will eventually turn around and serve the younger and say, everything that we're doing is really here for your benefit because that is really what the purpose of the world is, is this sense of the morality and the ethics that is going to be the final prophecy of Veravia Avot Seir. May we all see that speedily in our day. Then, it says her, her pregnancy came to term. Behold, they were twins. First again, as we mentioned, what do you mean, and they were twins? We were expecting the twins. We knew that they were twins. Why is there such a, a shock to that? So first writes as follows, Rivka was already fully informed that the twins were coming, but she was expecting them to be total opposites because she was told, Shnei Goyim, Shnei Lu'umim. So she would have thought they're going to come from the very first moment and they're going to be, they have nothing to do with each other. And the opposite seems to have been the case, that after she was told of the contrasting differences between her expected children, she would have thought, not identical twins, they will look nothing at all alike. And the surprising thing is that they were really identical twins. And the only difference was their constitution. One was fully developed already. Esav was already redder and hairy. And Yaakov was without that. But otherwise, Vihine, these two who are so identical, so alike in every way, other than this one is at a further stage of development, but otherwise, totally identical twins is the surprise that the exterior will be completely dissimilar to that which has been predicted and what will develop interiorly from the insides as to what's going to uh, happen. And on that, and on that, let's get to one last major comment, a very, very powerful comment from Refersh, probably one of the most famous comments that he has because, again, of its um, non-conventional nature of how we look at the story of Yaakov and of Esav is from the very next Pasuk, which we did not yet read inside. Let's just take a look at that. The Pasuk describes, we finished the first section, which was their birth, and then the second story is the, is the selling of the birthright. That begins with the following, and the boys grow up. And what happens as the boys grow up? Esav becomes a man who knows the field, who knows how to hunt. Whereas Yaakov becomes a person who was a simple person, perfect person who sat in the tents and was uh, one who learned. And Yitzhak, of course, loves the Esav, Kitzayid Befiv, because he had a taste for game. And Rivka loves Yaakov. And then we learn about how Yaakov made his stew and Esav comes in and, and of course, buys it from him. On the phrase, that the boys grow up, Rashi makes a, an astounding comment. The way the Torah phrases it, it seems like the boys grew up and Esav became a hunter and Yaakov became one who sat in yeshiva as if we didn't know anything about their two qualities until they actually grew up. And in fact, that's what Rashi says is exactly what the Torah wants us to know with this phrase of Ayyigdulu Anearim. Rashi tells us 
As long as the boys were young, they were not recognizable, any difference between them in their actions. Nobody was able to know the difference or understand what, what their character is, who they were. No one paid attention to it. When they reach the age of 13, Rashi says, This one went off to the Beis HaMedrash to learn, and this one went off to Avodah Zarah, to idolatry, and to everything else that Esav became known for. In that comment, Rav Hirsch sees a scathing rebuke of Yitzchak and of Rivka that the Torah says, and Chazal understand, the boys grew, and Esav went this way, and Yaakov went that way, and as the sages said, until they were 13, no one knew the difference between them. Says Rav Hirsch, our sages never objected to drawing attention to the small and great mistakes and weaknesses of our great forefathers. We've highlighted this a number of times from our first. The Torah points out the Avos and Imos were not perfect. They were human beings. Great human beings, but human beings. And here too, refers sees in this comment from the sages of Vanyig Delu Anarim, and then at 13, suddenly they went off in their different directions. They are making a remark, which is a signpost for all of us, that the striking grandchildren of the Avram Avinu, that we should have a Yaakov on the one side and an Esav on the other, is due not so much to the difference in their temperaments, not of nat- natural causes, not of nature, but of nurture. He doesn't use these modern words, but he says that it's not their temperaments, but to mistakes in the way they were brought up. There's a very, very, uh, I'm trying to think about the right word to say it, uh, audacious claim that Rav Hirsch writes that the development of an Esav was due to the mistakes of the way that a, Yaakov, a Yitzchak and a Rivka raised them. And he says, and this is what the sages say, I'm not saying this, this is what the sages are saying. As long as they were little, no attention was paid to the slumbering differences in their nature. Both had the exact same teaching, the exact same education, and the idea of you can't educate two children in the same way. Every child needs to be educated in his or her specific way was completely forgotten. The reason why nobody understood the difference between the two of them until they were 13 is not because there weren't differences, but because nobody paid attention to understand the differences between them, what were their different natures, and how should they be educated differently to bring out each one's. That each child must be treated differently with an eye to their slumbering tendencies of their nature. And then from out of that to bring out and develop their special characteristics, that is the responsibility of every parent. And listen to this line. The great Jewish task in life is basically simple, one and the same for all. Keep Torah mitzvos, fulfill your... Like we could put as the banner, every Jew has the same task. But, he says, in its realization, how do I get there? How do I become who I need to become to be an Evan Hashem, to serve Hashem, to be a Yari Shemaim, to fear God? How do I do that? That is as varied and complicated as the natures and varied, complicated natures of human beings themselves. Each and every child needs something totally different in order to be able to fulfill themselves. We want everybody to be fulfilled. Yeah, great. How do you get there? Everybody needs something different, which is why Yaakov himself 
on his own deathbed, he writes, when he gathers his 12 sons around him and he gives his final blessings at the end of Sefer Bracious, gives each one according to what he needs. And he lists everybody amongst the Jewish people. He says, we have them all. We have royalty, we have Kohanim, Levim, merchants, farmers, soldiers. You're all in front of me. And everybody got their own blessing. The farmer needs a different blessing than the soldier, which needs a different blessing than the Kohen, needs a different blessing than the king. A nation needs all of those components. There's not a single blessing for all 12 tribes. 12 tribes are going to make up the Jewish people, filling all the needs that the Jewish people have, and each one of them needed something different. But, he says here, you have these two children who are going to go in various different ways and are given the same education. To try, he writes, to bring up a Yaakov and an Esav in the same yeshiva, to make them have the same habits and the same hobbies, to want to teach them and educate them in the same way, how could that possibly work? For a Yaakov, you put him in a yeshiva and make him sit in a classroom for 12 hours a day, it is, will create studious, a meditative, meditative life. It will increase his zeal and his zest. He will just absorb the wisdom. But to try to put Esau into that same system, a person who's a ish sadeh, a man of the field, you can't sit him down in a classroom when you got somebody jumping out of his seat. It is the surest way to court disaster, to take a child whose nature is to be out in the field and make him sit in a classroom all day long. A Yaakov will drink from the well of wisdom, but an Esau in that system can hardly wait for the time to throw away the old books. When indeed, his whole mission is to take all of those talents, all of those strengths, all of that ability to be a doer, a mover, and a shaker, to control the world in so many different ways, that needs to be brought into the world of Torah. But you can't do that educationally in the same way that you trained the Rosh Hashiva. And uh, rehearse again, had Yitzchak and Rebekah and Rivka studied Esau's nature and character early enough, the, the Chazal say until 13, nobody knew there was a difference between the two of them. Had they studied the character of these two children early enough and asked themselves, how can even an Esau with his strength and energy, agility and courage and awake in that slumbering child to be won over into the service of Hashem, then... Yaakov and Esav, with their totally different natures, could still have remained twin brothers in spirit and in life. And the sword of Esav would have worked hand in hand with the spirit of Yaakov. And who knows, he says, what a different aspect the whole world history would have presented. But, it was only when the boys had grown into men, was then one surprised and said, what? Two of the, I don't know, who, who knew? They came from the same womb. They were in the same house. Look at how divergent they went. Rav Hirsch sees in that statement of Chazal a rebuke that nobody had paid attention, indeed, to their two different natures. They had been given the same education, and that does not work. This is, again, 1860s. He's writing about the idea that you cannot educate two children in the same way. There needs to be a sense of understanding what is the nature of each child. One size does not fit all when it comes to Jewish education. Never has, never will. We have challenges because you can't have 15 different schools when I have 15 students in a grade. I, I, I can't. 
And meanwhile, that doesn't mean that whatever the classroom is going on. So there, we have nice terms, differentiated education. Yeah, we have all the terms trying to address this problem. We're getting there. But Rav Hershey's way before this became uh, in vogue terms, a Yaakov and an Esav was, uh, he puts the blame at the feet of their, of their parents. Yitzchak and Rivka, Vayigdalu Anarim, it was not until they had grown up, they had already hit 13, that they, that they became aware that the natures were so vastly different, and then already it was too late trying to educate them in the same way. This is a non-traditional approach to Yitzchak, and, to Yaakov and to Esav, certainly, but it is one that uh, Rav Hirsch puts forth. And again, he says, it's not me. This is his understanding of the statement of Chazal on Vayik Delu Narim, that they grew up and only then at 13 did we notice anything different between them. Those are some of the thoughts, very, very fascinating thoughts of Rav Hirsch on the birth of Yaakov and Esav. Of course, we did not even get to the other two major stories of the selling of the birthright and then the stealing of the blessings, but Mir Tashem, there'll be other opportunities to do so. Come, we're here, we're live. Next, we're going to bring Ragalach. We're going to have chocolate cake. It's going to be so good. Uh, you all are going to miss out. Um, looking forward to getting together. We'll learn uh, Mirza Hashem uh, next week. Have an amazing day, everyone.